Welcome to Jesse War Radio. Jesse War Radio is available from jessiewar.com. New episodes are posted every Friday. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, all one word. If you enjoy Jesse War Radio, please consider pledging at patreon.com slash jessiewar. Thank you for tuning in. Tracy R. Twyman is an American nonfiction author who writes about esoteric history. Her most well-known books include Clock Shavings, The Merovingian Mythos, Solomon's Treasure, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, and her latest book is Baphomet, The Temple Mystery Unveiled, which we'll be discussing today. Without going further into summarizing today's interview, I'd just like to say that this has been one of the most in-depth and revealing interviews I've ever done, and it's one of the most informative. Uh, Tracy really uh, spells out what she really thinks about uh, world conspiracies, um, aside from giving an excellent overview of her entire book, uh, Baphomet, The Temple Mystery Unveiled. So without further ado, let's start the interview. So um, we're here to discuss your book, Baphomet, The Temple Mystery Unveiled, which you just released recently. Is that correct? Yeah, we, uh, we released it, I would say, um, early November. And uh, unfortunately, we, uh, we noticed uh, some major mistakes, um, printing errors, basically, in the first edition. So we had to pull it from the market for a little, a little while and make a correction. And then uh, the new edition just came out couple weeks ago so oh cool uh it really hasn't been out very long at all cool well it's a good looking book and it has the cover's really nice and it has some good art in it and then also there's some there's some really great chapters so um i'd like to find out if it'd be possible maybe maybe discuss all those chapters perhaps you could give us a little summary of each chapter or some certain chapters and um okay and then also um, the description on, on Amazon of, for the book, it has a lot of intriguing questions. So um, I'm wondering if we could just maybe start going over some of those. Sure. That's okay. A, that's a good idea. So, right. so basically the – oh, can you give us a, um, an overview of what the book's about first? Well, um, it is about the subject of Baphomet, which is this idol that the Knights Templar were accused of worshipping in uh, blasphemous ceremonies. And that was really their downfall after uh, centuries of success in, in really dominating Europe and the world in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, they, their downfall came because they were accused of worshiping this idol. Not a lot really has ever been definitively known about this idol. And it really is kind of a mystery as, as far as uh, what it really physically was, what the word, the name Baphomet means. and. Uh, and what what meaning it had to them so uh it's just one uh, what uh, i thought was a, a really intriguing historical mystery and actually as uh, as the book reveals it kind of gets down to you know the uh the the deepest mysteries of of existence you know when, when we uh uh tie it into basically the the uh, story of the garden of eden and the origins of good and evil so uh, you know, it turns out to be one of the you know biggest mysteries ever, and uh, it actually no one had actually ever written a very comprehensive book on the subject before. So that's what we ended up doing, and I think we accomplished that. Yeah, that's what I find so interesting about. I've been looking at the range of books that you've written, and it seems like they really strike at the heart of uh, sort of what we're talking about: occult, and then you could say conspiracy too, although that's a really loose term. 
and a malign right. term and um and then just esoteric subject matter um that other people i i think uh there's it's not that other people don't take it seriously but i think other people tend to rely on the irrational as opposed to actually sort of giving a, a historical um hopefully unbiased or as unbiased as possible account of of what has actually gone on historically and it seems like you're doing that is that how you see what you're doing well i i think all along i've just um uh i've been writing the books that I couldn't find on the shelves myself about uh, subjects that interested me uh, really yeah, pertaining to Western occult tradition. And, uh, you know, as I've studied that very broad subject with uh, several different uh, subcategories, I've found that uh, there are some things that are just um, implied and uh, omnipresent in a lot of these um uh, you know, esoteric books of of uh, secret society mysteries and and uh, also in the mythologies of the world. There, there's these uh, Im implied truths and connections between symbols that uh, there seems to be at least a, a few uh, categories where no one has written the book putting it all together yet. So that's what I I started off with the subject of uh the the mythology surrounding the the Merovingian bloodline in France and the you know the stories about the Holy Grail and the mystery of Rennes le Chateau and uh I really kind of took that subject in a, the direction that I thought it needed to go where there were lots of people writing books about really minute aspects of the mystery and then lots of people just basing basing all of their um inquiry on the assumption that the the whole heart of the of the mythology and the and the um, symbolism is about Jesus and Mary Magdalene and a bloodline coming from them. And uh, what I did when I approached that subject is I just you know took it uh, much further and in a more comprehensive way connected it to deeper mysteries than that. And uh, really, obviously, it's it's connected to the Holy Grail uh, symbol, which you know, as it turns out, is sort of really a symbol for God and a symbol for the, uh, the, um, transcendental nature of God, the sort of, uh, uh, contradictory nature of God where, you know, God is the author of good and evil and, uh, you know, at, at the same time perceived as being overall good somehow. Um, you know, and that, that, that mystery of God is really what it turned out the Holy Grail symbol was about. And all of the, uh, the symbolism surrounding this bloodline of the Holy Grail, as it's called, uh, it connects to that, as it turns out. So I wrote a book on that subject, and that's really got how it all got started, because everything I've written since then has really built upon that framework. A lot of the, um, you know, c conclusions that I came to during that research that I did uh, have, have uh, really tied into the, the other books that I've written. And this Baphomet symbolism which really, again, is uh, it's, this, it's the same as the Holy Grail, really. Uh, as I as I said, it's this uh, origin of the uh, the now dichotomous forces of good and evil, and uh, and the mystery of how those two are, are actually connected. That's uh, that's really what the Baphomet symbolism is all about, and um, that has been at the crux of a, a lot of my investigations. And you'll find if you 
read through all of my books. So there's Merovingian Mythos, which is about Holy Grail and the, and the bloodline. And then I wrote Solomon's Treasure, which is about um, the alchemical nature of economics and how modern economics is based on sort of a magical uh, process of alchemy and the symbolism of alchemy is throughout uh, modern finance. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I wrote that book, um, and really one of the things I, I, I touched on very deeply there was this concept of Baphomet and how uh, it, it, it really relates to uh, modern finance in a way, which it can very much be traced back to some of the innovations that were brought forward by the Templars. They were uh, associated with the origins of, of banking and checking. They invented a system that, in a lot of ways, was the origin of the checking system we use today. And uh, obviously, Freemasonry came out of Templars, and uh, it, the Freemasons had a lot to do with, um, really, the, you know, the creation of the United States, which it, it has also uh, really influenced and obviously had a sort of hegemonic uh, role in uh, directing the currently international finance system. All these things are connected. And, and, and what we find when we look at the, the origin of it uh, historically, the Templars, is that they were obsessed with this principle of Baphomet. And uh, it really, uh, if, you, if you take seriously what was said about Baphomet by later authors, occult authors like Eliphas Levi, that Baphomet is really the, um, the same power that is alluded to in the, the alchemical texts where they talk about the power that can transform lead into gold, the power that, that can make a, a magical transformation happen. Uh, Le Levi and other authors have said that power is really Baphomet. So um, it seems like you know, Baphomet is really uh, connected to uh, the mysteries of modern finance and the mysteries of alchemy. So I wrote two books about that subject and uh, you know, had to uh, deal with the subject of Baphomet in those books as well. And, uh, you know, it was only natural, really, that I would eventually have to write a book all about Baphomet. But um, it took a really long time. I've been working on it for about seven or eight years. And it's such a big subject that I ended up having to uh, get someone to help me because I, I really couldn't even mentally hold all of the ideas in my own head, at, you know, when, when I was trying to analyze it, trying to organize all the, all the stuff in the book. I just, uh, I was overwhelmed. and eventually. I uh, met Alex Rivera online, who's a writer on uh, Gnostic subjects and has, a, has this website called aeoni.com, or I think maybe the, the Aeoni. Uh, at any rate, he uh, joined me and, uh, and finally helped me complete it. You know, after six or seven years of struggling with it, I, after joining forces with him, was able to finally finish it in the space of a year. So... Uh, and it, but it turned out, as you saw, to be very, very long. It's it's over 600 pages long, but that's really what we needed in order to to cover the subject. So, and I think we did it well. And did you encounter any kind of resistance to writing this book or any of your other books? You mean uh, from the world? Yeah, I mean, just from any kind of uh, people or just kind of any kind of forces or anything like that. Uh. Well, the whole the subject with um, Baphomet and my researches into it has always been 
sort of guided by Baphomet himself in a way. And I, I um, addressed this in my introduction to the Baphomet book. My previous book talks all about it. Uh, the, the book that came out in 2014 was called Clock Shavings, and that mm. was a memoir. And that was all about my experiences on the Ouija board, which, uh, you know, it was started out as sort of a lark and something I was doing for fun. And, uh, you know, I ended up uh, being in contact with Baphomet and uh, it was something that he chose. I didn't I wasn't really thinking about Baphomet at the time. Uh, I was I had my mind on other things, but Baphomet contacted me and I really formed sort of a long term relationship with this entity uh, where I got quite a lot of leads, I would say, on, on the research I was doing. And that's mainly what we were talking about with the, what the uh, seances were all about was just try to get some insight into the uh, esoteric mysteries that we were researching, me and uh, the friends I was connected with at the time. So, uh, you know, I found that to be, I know that's kind of a, a weird subject, but uh, that is, uh, you know, something that I, I've done. It's, it's part of my experience and definitely uh, something that's influenced me. Well, no, it's, and me, I would say that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, to me, it sounds like you're balancing the irrational with the rational, which is really the right way to approach this subject, I think. That is, uh, in a way, that's, uh, again, another one of those dichotomies that is embodied in the symbolism of Baphomet himself. He's, and, and, and that really comes across in the conversations I had with him on the Ouija board, where, you know, yes, he's capable of being rational, but there's also a sort of psychopathic irrationality to him sometimes in the way, the way that he speaks. Uh, right, you, right. you can tell he's a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, so... Um, Anyway, I, I, I always sort of could tell from those conversations that this the the mystery of Baphomet himself is a really deep mystery and something that I I felt personally qualified to write about in a way that I don't think very many people are. And uh I, I even though I think that lots of magicians and uh other types of uh people in, uh who are involved with invisible forces I think a lot of them have dealt with Baphomet, but uh, I, I don't know if uh, many of them have had the sort of personal conversations we've had, you know, and the, uh, I don't know, I felt like I knew him better than, uh, than almost anyone. And so I felt really qualified to write this book and uh, I've been struggling for years to try to put into words the, uh, the understanding that I had in my mind about it. And also just struggling to, uh, trying to figure out how uh how it all works in history like what what is the origin of this idea you know um it didn't it, obviously the word uh seems to have its origin with the templars but uh you know what where did it come out of basically and what what did they uh what did they really think about the meaning of this entity that they were involved in yeah so, so um, um well let's yeah, go let's go you, you've already brushed upon these subjects but you you mentioned clock shavings which is so you're saying that that was um your memoirs uh, relating to your own experience with baphomet and also probably the beginning of your study about for this book and then also yeah. and then so so these are um so is it possible we could probably go through some of these chapter titles i'm wondering and sure okay so so it starts off with um after the preface, it starts off with chapter one, Pacts with the Devil. So does that involve the Templars? Yeah, that's uh, obviously the, to introduce the subject, you have to first talk about what is historically known about Baphomet and 
what the Templars actually said about him or, or what was ever actually proven about him. So um, that that chapter, I think, in a way uh, that that no other book has, lays out exactly what uh, the Templars were accused of and then what they uh, actually confessed to. And um, yes, to to summarize it, it definitely um, it definitely was a, a pact with the devil in a way. And in fact, everything that we think of about uh, you know the practice of Satanism, uh, the sorts of rituals that Satanists might uh, be involved in, it all seems to be based on the confessions of the Templars. So. Uh, you know, in a way, they what they were doing it w- is the origin of what you know a lot of uh, heavy metal fans today <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, rebellious teenagers are doing now in homage to Satan. So, uh, so anyway, but th- what I think is important about that chapter is again uh, laying out specifically what the the Templars did confess to, because there has been. In relatively recent years, in the last uh, 20 years, um, revelations supposedly coming from the Vatican that uh, have, you know, changed the way that uh, that authors write about this subject. So it used to be sort of a question mark about whether these confessions were real or, you know, were they just um, basically being tortured by the the King of France's uh, police and, and uh, justice system. And it, was it just basically the torture that made them confess to these things? Were, were they false accusations, in other words? And everyone has always acted like that was just a mystery. And in fact, most people have, act, have uh, assumed that, yeah, you know, it was probably all made up. They probably just confessed to whatever they had to say in order to make the torture stop. But in recent years, there's been this uh, revelation of a, a document supposedly found accidentally in the Vatican archives, where it's claimed in this document that the Pope had his own investigation that he did that did not involve torture, and he obtained similar confessions. So they confessed to it a second time not on, and not under torture. And what they confessed to, they did uh, confess to um, a system of homosexuality in the order. So they would tell them that, um, it, you know, <laughs> when you join the order, you you take sort of a vow of chastity, but that's really about ha- not having sex with women. And if you feel like uh, you're tempted to have sex, then it's better to uh, do it with your brothers than to give in to a woman, and that would somehow lower lower your uh, you know spiritual uh, strongholds or something. You know, it would be it would be t- it would be tainting to. Uh, to be involved with a woman, but it's okay if you do it with a man. So they would literally have a, a vow you would take where you would promise that if your brothers asked to have sex with you, you would give into it. And that if you had a sexual urge, you would do it with your brothers instead of with a woman. So that in itself, the fact that they confessed to that is uh, twice. It's kind of shocking. Uh, in the context of uh, what has been written about the Templars so far, which is almost always sort of apologetic, All, almost always, um, yeah, it, from the point of view that these are trumped up charges, they never actually did this stuff. 
Right, and that's um, probably but, because the Freemasons tend to want to defend the Knights Templars as their predecessor, sort of. Exactly. You know what? That's a good point because, yeah, most of the books that are really written about this subject, it, a lot of times it turns out that the authors are Masons themselves. And, uh, you know, that's why they have a sympathetic point of view towards, uh, towards the order and, and always wanting to sort of clean up the image of the, of the Templar order. So, and uh, interestingly, you get the same attitude now from the Vatican because it's the whole the whole way that this do document was uh, rolled out, and it, I think they said they found it in two thousand one. It wasn't until many years later that they finally revealed it. What What was the name um, of that document? It's called the Chinon Parchment. Okay, right. And uh, this woman Barbara Frail, who works for the Vatican, is the one who said she found it, and then she went on to write a book explaining what was in it. Uh, but it took a while before that book came out. The first book that came out was published by the Vatican in Italian, and it was like printed with special leather binding and weird leather straps on it to make it look all fancy, and it cost $9,000, and there were only a few copies printed. So <laughs> it was like for years, no one really actually read the thing. But there were all these articles that were printed about it in the news. When they unveiled it, it was a, a news story. They unveiled it um, on, to coincide with the anniversary of the arrest of the Templars. So, you know, it's obviously it's a publicity stunt, the way they revealed this information. And, and part of the, the way the, <coughs> excuse me, the way the headlines were written said that this document proves that the Templars were exonerated. Every single article you read about this says that. And it's because they're inferring that based on the way that Barbara Frail, working for the Vatican, uh, promoted her book. The, the things that she said in her book and the, the, the promotional material that came out implied that it was somehow exonerating the Templars. <laughs> but it's actually the exact opposite. And when you read her book, the English version that came out years later, you, you realize that, no, it didn't exonerate them at all. They did all these things, including um, part of their initiation ritual, as they confessed, uh, denying Christ, spitting on the cross. Um, and then all of the, uh, the homosexual acts, as I mentioned, uh, part of the initiation, they confessed again a second time, uh, kissing on the buttocks, that they had to kiss their uh, grandmaster's butt when they were uh, being initiated, and then sometimes they would have to kiss his penis too. Okay, and then and in her book, she even documents that a lot of the Templar initiates were quite young too, and one was even 11 years old. So think about that. <laughs> um, and so all of this is uh, is true. They confessed to this twice. The only uh, what what she meant, and she allowed it to be deliberately misconstrued. What she meant when she said they were exonerated is that the Pope absolved them. And, it was, and that's all it was, was he heard their confessions, and then he gave them absolution. Oh, so that does that doesn't, that doesn't do, Yeah, that doesn't yeah. preclude them having been um, exiled from France, etc. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You know, all, all the justice that happened to them later was uh, from France, from the from French government. But the, the Vatican is putting this out saying, well... The situation wasn't as bad as, uh, you know, Prince Philip tried to make it look, or King Philip tried to make it look. 
and that uh, it, they, they even had, again, sort of an apologetic explanation for this, that these were all just tests to see how loyal the people were going to be. Uh, and, you know, they didn't really mean it, in other words. That is just sort of, you know, a hazing ritual. And, and that's so, somehow supposed to make it better when, you know, if you know any Catholic today and you tell them, you know, how, how would you like to join an organization where you have to spit on the cross and kiss someone's penis uh, and deny, deny your belief in God and Christ? Well, you know, they're going to say, no way. That's one of the worst things you could do. You know, uh, God might not ever forgive you for that. That's what most Christians believe. But the Vatican is saying that their own, you know, chartered holy order, the, their warriors uh, in the crusade, uh, we're doing that, but it's no big deal. Right, yeah. Have you, <laughs> and, have you uh, found any evidence connecting the Templars to the, the Jesuits by any chance? Um, you know, I haven't really explored that angle of it yet. Um, that's, that would be interesting because I'm, I'm uh, learning a little bit more about the Jesuits myself uh, from another angle, but uh, no, I, I really, I, uh, I don't have anything to say. Well, because you mentioned right that now. you mentioned that the um, the va the current Vatican is uh, sympathetic with the Templars, which it seems surprising. And then, but if the if the current Vatican is Jesuit, which it is, it seems to be right. Then why wouldn't they be uh, sympathetic with the Templars, if especially I, if they're Freemasonic? You know, I'm not really sure what the motivation here is. I think that will reveal itself in time. But they're definitely trying to portray that the Templars weren't that they were somehow wrongly maligned by the King of France, and trying to portray also that they they tried to contain the situation, they that uh, the Pope tried to save them basically tried to save them from being executed and failed and they and they and the way they tell the whole story it's you know the King of France. Uh, was so powerful in Europe at that time, more powerful than the Vatican, or you know, I don't even think the Vatican existed, but more, more powerful than the papacy, because actually it had been moved to France at that time. Uh, and those, they're portraying the church at that time as uh, impotent and powerless and, uh, you know, the pawns of the French king. Um, and it's a way, I think, of apologizing for themselves and their role in everything. I mean, because the Templars came out of the church. And so whatever they did and whatever their leg legacy is historically, uh, which appears to be Freemasonry, um, the, the Vatican or the, the church really is the origin of it in some ways, you know? Uh, yeah, that's really so, telling, so isn't it? It seems really telling, you know, that they're apologizing for the Templars out of all the people that they could, you know, apologize for. And then... Uh, Another question I had is you mentioned homosexuality. So with the um, with the seal of the Templars, with the two uh, knights on the same horse, do you think that that's what that means? I think that's quite possible that it was alluding to that. Yes. Um, and there, there's a, a lot of other alleged Templar symbolism that really depicts quite a lot of uh, sexual debauchery in, in, in the context of rituals. So that, that's another thing that um, we get into in that chapter, and then actually it's a, it's a thread running throughout the entire book, is that um, one, of the, one of the most important texts in the development of the historical understanding of Baphomet and the Templars 
is this book that was uh, written in Latin in the 1800s by a Viennese uh, Orientalist, as they called them. Uh, and he wrote this book called Mysterium Baphometus Ravaletum. In fact, it's, it's more of like a chapter in another book. Uh, so it's really, um, it's, it's not an, an entire book, but it's, it's about 70 pages of material. And um, Eliphas Levi, his, who you know, really uh, had a lot to do with the modern understanding of Baphomet, he's the one that drew the image that everyone thinks of now when they think of Baphomet, of a, of a goat-headed human, uh, a, a male with, with breasts and a goat head. Um, is, Eliphas Levi's understanding of Baphomet was largely informed by this book. In fact, every, everything that has been written about Baphomet is largely influenced by this book. But um, I would say after the 1800s, after the late 1800s, people stopped actually reading it. Uh, I would say probably fewer and fewer people were understanding Latin and just didn't bother to actually read it. And no one did an English translation of it. So um, this book was talked about by people writing about Baphomet, but the people writing about it almost never had actually read it. And we finally uh, tracked it down and had it translated. This book, uh, the guy who wrote it, claimed to have found in all of these properties, uh, the, these churches and things that were on former Templar properties. He said that he found all of these relics that proved that the, the Templars were doing these blasphemous and debaucherous rituals. And he, in, in this book, he has all of these images, which are line drawings that he's done of the, the things that he found. And a lot of them are in Austria, some in Germany, some in France. Uh, but they actually, a lot of them have common elements that make them look really like they're from the same artist in some ways. Uh, and definitely a lot of uh, common symbolism. And uh, he said that, yeah, he thought that these these artifacts were from the Templars. And when his book came out, some people took him seriously. A lot of people uh, didn't believe uh, the conclusions he had come to. So they either thought that the artifacts weren't, you know, that he wrongly identified them as coming from the Templars. Or some people thought that it was all sort of a, a hoax and a conspiracy. Uh, that the artifacts had been made up, you know, uh, physically created in in uh, contemporary times. What's, and what century was that? Was being made up. What century did that uh, come out? 1800s. So early 1800s. So before Eliphas Levy. Right before him. Oh, all right. So, uh, yeah. So this would have been a, you know, a book that had come out uh, 10 or 20 years earlier. Actually, about 10 years earlier. Uh, 10 years earlier than uh, Eliphas Levi's first book about the subject, I think. And I've, I'm, I'm uh, going off memory here. I need to be able to consult my own book because I have the exact uh, dates in there, but well, I don't have the book on. Well, the back, back to the Chinon parchment. I mean, do, are there, do you suspect that it might be uh, not real? I mean, it yeah. seems just so coincidental that they would uh, release something uh at such a, an auspicious time for them to do so. And then, you know, why would they let, if this woman's a librarian or whatever, why would they let her just like publish something that should be um, kept secret supposedly, right? Well, they did actually keep it secret for 
uh, I think it came the the uh, first book that they published about it and the announcement. I think that was 2011. So it was like 10 years that they kept the secret. Okay. And uh, again, I need to. I, I I hope my dates are right. Um, I need my book in front of me. But uh, anyway, it was there were several years between the time that she found it and the time that they published the book about it, and then there were several more years before an English translation of her book came out. Or I think actually she wrote a second book that was longer and, and then they finally, you know, published that in all different languages and stuff. But, but they did try to keep it under wraps, it seemed for a while. And, but here's the thing, here's what we found in our investigation is that uh, so many of the important documents that reveal uh, stuff supposedly about the Templars, you know, real secrets about the Templars. The alleged origin of these documents is over and over again, someone stumbling across it in a library, either in the Vatican or more often even uh, in the private libraries of Masonic lodges. So a Mason will supposedly find a, a text in his lodge's library and then write a book about it or, you know, publish something about it. And right. that's how everyone knows about it. Um, so we examined several of these in the book uh, and every single one of them. Yeah, I, I question the authenticity of it. I mean, I, <laughs> definitely, this is one of the many historical subjects I've looked at where I don't necessarily believe anything. And uh, I think that so much of history can be made up and no one would know any better. So uh, I don't necessarily believe any of this. It's all, all coming out of secret societies. You know, this is a secret society subject. And it's entirely possible that it's all self-referential and, and, you know, it's all stuff they made up and they're, they're the ones talking about it. It's important to them and it, ha it has no, no meaning beyond that. That's entirely possible. But then it, but, it uh, might have a kernel of truth as well, right? Well, I think um, secret. Okay, one of the things about all these uh, organizations, you know, they're they sort of put themselves forward as the repositors of the mysteries of the universe, but I think they're also trying to figure it out too. Uh, they're doing they're doing the same thing I'm doing. I mean, uh, I'm just putting together symbols and and. Uh, connections that I see and, and trying to then speculate on what it might mean. Um, yeah, but so that's I, the only I, I, thing you can do, you know, that's the only thing you can do with this type of literature. Cause it's, it's like a, a minefield, you know? <laughs> oh yes. You know? Yeah. And I, and I wonder too, yeah, if, um, I, I would say, you know, Baphomet is like in a way the, you know, the quintessential, uh, mystery of, of Freemasonry. And I think that it's one of those things that none of them really understand i'm not claiming that i totally understand it either i think it's you know one of those deep mysteries um but i also i think the what the, what the relationship the templars had with this entity you know it was their patron they um they talked to this supposedly this head during their rituals the head would talk back to them and give them wisdom and it had this magical ability to create riches and it really, I think, probably was the origin of all of their ideas. So the way that they organized themselves, the approaches that they took to business and the, the approaches that they took to battles and politics and the way that they uh, managed to become so dominant in Europe and, and elsewhere and in the Holy Land. Uh, you know, I, I think this is the irrational part of me, you know, where I believe in, in, in magic and su superstition. And the supernatural, 
uh, I think that, you know, they probably were talking to an entity the same way that I was able to talk to an entity and that that entity gave them information that enabled them to dominate, to do all these things. And so, what, what information do you think that was, are, Tracy? What information well, do you think that was? Well, like I said, um, uh, I, I know, I only know the parts that I can understand. So, um, you know, you can tell that, uh, this method of setting up an, an economic system where people deposit their wealth with you and your organization, and then you give them credit based on that. And then you can actually issue credit to other people based on that wealth that's deposited with you as well. And therefore, you have all these people owing you money, but you only have the original money that was given to you in the first place by the depositors. That's, that's the credit system that they invented. And that is what is, uh, you know, that's the dominating influence on Earth today. That's uh, the system we're all trapped in. And part of the problem we're seeing the whole thing un unravel now is that, uh, you know, there's so many, so many debts created based on only a few assets. And, you know, you can, uh, you can weave very complex webs and create uh, very vast empires based on that, but eventually it will uh, all collapse, I think. And, uh, and we're seeing that now, but because, but, because uh, people but, stop believing. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a system based on, um, um, yeah, magic basically where people believe, uh, that the, the piece of paper has the, the same value as the, the money that they deposited, the, you know, something, some a actual asset with, uh, you know, real wealth. And, uh, but they believe in the magic of the credit. And so as long as they keep believing it will, uh, you know, they can keep trading those bits of credit around with each other. Everyone thinks it has some kind of value. But once you start to think that, well, uh, you know, maybe there aren't enough jobs for all the people on Earth. Uh, you know, there's too many debts. No one can ever pay them. When you, <laughs> when you start to think that way, uh, then that's what actually happens. So yeah, that's, way, that's what, sorry, that's, that's, I had like a revelation about that the other day. It's just basically the bank is the collective. So we're the bank, sort of, because we all believe okay. in this in this myth, you know, of the paper that you mentioned. Yeah, and and something like that. I mean, it almost requires magic, you know, um, and some sort of master magician at the helm, because you need someone to you know keep weaving the spell. And uh, but the way that gives you power, obviously, is you're the one holding the real wealth. So the more people give you their, their stuff in exchange for the credit, the, the better off you are. Even if your system collapses, you still have all the goods. So um, that's the sort of thing I think the Templars were poised to do. You know, they wanted to rule the world. The, and one of the popes even uh, wrote something about that several years later. Actually, it was in the 1800s, one of those popes wrote something about the Templars, and he said they created themselves uh, with the purpose of taking over the world. And, you know, they were on their way to doing that, I think. And so, you know, even though um, the King of France may be no, uh, no saint, I think that um, in a way he might have slowed down at least the progress of an uh, a organization that, you know, had its intention to, to dominate and, and subdue the rest of the world. Well, and the, and the big happened anyway, I guess. The, the big contention is, of course, 
what role, what role do the Jews play in this? And people will con- constantly blame the Jews for like the conspiracy of Jewish world domination. But it seems like um, w- to whatever extent certain Jewish people might be involved in this globalization, global conspiracy, Zionism, etc. Um, it seems like there are other entities involved as well. And those are the ones that people really can't put their fingers on. So I think that the Jews may be used as scapegoats. So what have you thought about that? I mean, just uh, candidly, you know, what, what have you thought about all that? Candidly. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, I, I don't uh, know exactly. And I think that, you know, people are either just either arrogant or perhaps too politically correct if they want to say that you know, they absolutely know for certain that's not the case. Um, I'm going to say I don't know. Or, or even if people say that they do know, that's arrogance too. You don't know really what is this entity called Jews. Uh, you know, that's something debatable, um, what it means. Um, and as far as, uh, you know, who these people are that seem to be in control, are they all one type of person? Um and does this label apply to them? Does is that somehow does that somehow reflect upon everyone who calls themselves a, a Jew? I think uh, <laughs> these are all questions. Um, mainly, you know, I I just don't look at it through that lens. You know, I, I, it's just annoying. Um, <laughs> it's like you can't. Just it, that that topic introduces irrationality into the the uh, conversation. I think, you know, it, you just ended up stumbling all over yourself, like kind of like I'm doing right now. Um, right, because you can't like, pin it down because we don't actually know. That's the problem, and it's like it's like um, people will put you into a corner if you don't say, "Oh, yes, it's the Jews." Or they'll put you in a corner if you don't agree with Alex Jones or whatever, saying it's the satanic death cults or it's the Vatican or whatever. And But the fact is, is uh, do we have any evidence to actually prove who is actually pulling these strings, you know? I don't think so. I mean, uh, I think the closest I came in terms of my personal understanding is just to realize that there are these um, intelligences that you can't see most of the time but you, you know, certain people can communicate with them. And the kind of interaction I had with the spirits I talked to made me realize how conspiracies could happen and how cults operate and how those things work together. So, um, you know, you can imagine if you join a secret society and, you know, first it's um, doing rituals and you're hanging out with your friends and it's just a club and, it's fun, and maybe you think that there's some mysterious, uh, you know, mystery information that they can give you, kind of like the Rosicrucians. You know, they teach you how to meditate and stuff like that. Um, you're 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 moving along, you're having fun in the organization, and and then finally, you get to the point where you realize that one of the you know the head of your order and the inner circle of your order, they're actually talking to uh, some kind of intelligence, some spirit. That's, you know, more than human. And, uh, you know, the, the, the effect that that would have on a person when they realize this thing that they're in is actually being directed by another intelligence. It's going to be either, you know, uh, uh, validating. In other words, they, re- they all of a sudden believe that they're involved in something really important 
or, uh, you know, they're going to reject it and be scared. Um, but for the people that stay, it's kind of like a cult. So, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be true believers and they're going to go along with whatever the cult, uh, you know, intends for them to do. So I, I think that that, that is really key. Okay. I don't know if it's the Jews, if the Jews are part of a larger group or if it's some subset of Jews or, uh, you know, this is just, just, uh, the, the the richest people in the world, whoever they happen to be, whatever race they happen to be. Uh, well, what I do think is that there's a, um, you know, someone orchestrating this from a perspective that we can't see. So, you know, I, I assume it's some kind of higher dimension that they're in or lower dimension. I'm not sure, but it's, uh, it's, they're in some sort of space that we can't see, but they're here and they can, they can see us from a different perspective. And that's how they're able to give you know, information to people that we otherwise wouldn't be able to obtain. And if you have someone like that on your side, giving you directions, telling you how to run a business and how to um, run a military operation, you know, it makes sense to me that uh, that's how the the Templars could have gained the, the power that they had. And by extension, that's how any group of people could gain power. And so, uh, you know, um, the, the question that you're asking, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, the other day I was reading how, um, supposedly the Rothschilds have more wealth than anyone on the Forbes list, but they're not on the Forbes list for some reason. And, you know, that caused me to wonder, well, how many other people aren't on the list and, you know, how much wealth do they have? And what if that's not being counted? And, you know, there, there's actually um, numbers that supposedly calculate how much money there is in the world at any given moment. Uh, what if what if a large amount of money and wealth just isn't being counted? Um, so who runs the world then? You know, are, are we just sort of in a game being run by other people and there's a much larger world beyond us? Much more money, much more resources, much more land. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, something like that that can be hidden from you. It just got, makes you wonder, you know, what else is being hidden from you? So as far as who's in, your, in control, it's so far beyond us right now. I, I, yeah, I don't think anyone can honestly say who it is. And these people that go around counting all of the Jews and saying who has a Jewish name or a Jewish nose, uh, I don't think they're helping anyone and they're just really entertaining themselves. And making themselves very unlikable, <laughs> but uh, I don't think it's all that useful. It's skirting around the issue, just like paying attention to politics. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. I mean, exactly. I mean, what could be more useless than uh, than getting involved with left or right politics when it, when you know that there's that that is just a game, and there's something else much bigger going on beyond that. And what what you what you find, nonetheless. Like if you, you know, if you have a bunch of friends on Facebook, like I do, you get to see what people are thinking all the time. You just read your feed and, and you can see what's going on. These people who have uh, interest in conspiracies and, you know, they believe that there's this higher elite controlling everything. Nonetheless, somehow every four years they get sucked in. Yeah. Caring about this left to right stuff. It, it, and it's weird. It's like. 
you'd think if they if they really thought the political process was important, wouldn't they be doing that all the time? Wouldn't they be involved in local politics? No, they only care about the presidential election. And it's like they, they can not think about it for three years, and then all of a sudden they get sucked right back in. Yeah, and it's amazing. It's, but, and uh, it's just yeah. a pu- it's just a puppet show every time, especially now, you know. Yeah. So. Um, and um, yeah, I think. Go ahead. Well, the concept of the scapegoat is what leads me to believe that um, that might be the role of the Jews to be a scapegoat, and then if that's the case, and if the Jews are the bankers for uh, some richer more powerful group or entity then then what is that group or entity in other words who chooses the chosen you know that's the question you know but well but, there was a really a really good book that was written about that actually one time called uh, uh the myth of jewish evil and the author was hiram maccabee and he uh i mean I, he wasn't exactly saying what you're saying but similar uh, how you know this the symbolism of the Jew in Europe has always coincided really with the symbolism of the scapegoat and, and really the biblical definition of a scapegoat. And, uh, you know, that, uh, the symbols of, uh, Judas Iscariot has always been associated with, you know, the, the symbol of the Jew. In other words, Judas plays the role of the Jew in that story. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of, uh, association people were intended to make between judas and jews so yeah it's a that's exactly what it is it's it it's like they know that someone's going to you know have some sort of innate understanding of of what's going on that there's an elite controlling them that they're enslaved somehow and that there's really uh, they're living really in a fake reality and and a much much uh, broader reality beyond that people are going to have that sort of inclination and understanding so they put this really simplistic, easy to understand uh, narrative in front of you to glom onto, to, so that you feel like you understand what's going on once you buy into the Jew conspiracy or whatever. Yeah, and why wouldn't they set something like that up? And why wouldn't it be um, encoded in scripture for millennia? You know. Yeah, and and you know it's a. Whatever you want to call Jews, I mean, uh, I think the word just um, comes from the tribe of Judah, really. So the whole story of the Bible up until, uh, you know, the, the sons of Isaac um, doesn't involve Jews per se. But, uh, you know, a lot of people associate the whole thing with with Judaism and consider, you know, the stories in the Bible like Genesis to be a Jewish story. But obviously, you know, just by definition, it it has to be something deeper than that because, you know, according to the the Bible's own narrative, Jews didn't exist until later in the story, you know. So uh, the whole what we consider the Judeo-Christian mythos is actually, you know, much broader than that. It's really our mythology. It's it's it belongs to us. It's not something foreign. So, um, you know, yeah, I think that. Again, it just it's a way of uh, separating people from uh, having a keeping them from having a deeper understanding. So yeah, 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 um, yeah. I try to avoid that stuff. Yeah, no, I know. Um, I I just think that um, maybe it maybe it does need to be addressed now. And the thing is, I don't have a motive for protecting the Jews from if if obviously there are a lot of Jews that are are that are complicit with the system as it stands, right? The banking system, et cetera. 
but um but it's I still have never been convinced that they're the ones completely in charge, you know, as a group or whatever. So it's that's the question that I have. That's why I'm asking you, you know, that. Um, well, um, the what what are the different uh, theories that people have? You mentioned this other thing that which you which you considered separate that there's a satanic conspiracy and, and well, Vatican as well, yeah. As far as I can tell, you know, that's kind of true. I mean, that's is my experience personally. My experience talking to the spirits, that's what it seems like. Yes, it's a satanic conspiracy. And as far as my research into the Templars, which as you know, we've just covered, you know, Freemasons came from them. Freemasons certainly, you know, had their own conspiracy for world domination going for a while. Even if they're not in control now, you know, they had a lot to do with building the structures that we have now. Uh, so all this stuff comes out of the Templars. And hell yeah, it was a satanic conspiracy. That's what they were doing. They are the authors of Satanism that came out of them. So, uh, I would say that's a uh, probably a more accurate way of putting it. Now, I, that doesn't make me happy because I don't want to be one of those people either, you know? <laughs> right, um, right, right, right. I mean, that's really the, some of the worst YouTube videos in the world <laughs> are made by people who believe in the satanic conspiracy and the Illuminati and the, all the rappers are making the... Yeah, the exactly, signals. yeah. They water it down. But I mean, that's why I'm appreciating your willing, your willingness to even discuss this. because. And, but that's the funny thing is that nobody actually wants to discuss this. Nobody's actually saying, well, wait a second, we need to question uh, the truth movement as well. You know, the truth movement that says that it's the Jews and then they list all these Jews after Jew after Jew. And it's like, well, okay, that's fine. But like, is is this really identifying the power structure here? Well, okay, and then here's a question. If if it is a satanic conspiracy, in other words, all these people seem to be involved in, you know, uh, belief, covert belief systems, rituals, and uh, groups that are somehow or another covertly giving homage to Satan. But at the same time, they land on that list that you're talking about of Jews. What does that mean about Judaism or the, you know, if you were to believe that, which I don't, but are we saying that Jewish Judaism is a satanic religion? And in that case, if you were to believe that, which a lot of people do, you see plenty of that on the internet. If that's true, then what is supposedly good? Now I've, uh, I found some of these people, you know, there's, there's churches operating now. They have presence on the web where they have their own, uh, theology about how Jesus is good, Christians are good, and that's somehow all separate from Judaism, and Judaism is, is satanic. So, you know, that's a belief system that exists, um, and I've been able to follow those people down their, uh, their own rabbit hole somewhat. I've been trying, I've watched some of their videos, try to follow what they're thinking. Um, but it's really it doesn't seem very historical to me, you know, in other words, they're really just sort of putting, you know, stretching it to try to somehow remove Christianity from its Judaic roots. I think it has uh, roots that are obviously beyond that or other, other uh, influences coming from outside Judaism. Christianity is a, is a, a different thing for sure, but there's no way that you could separate it from its Jewish influence either. So, 
Right, like uh, like Mithraism, you know. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Christianity is a, is a uh, synchristic religion, obviously. I mean, uh, it's a belief system based on a bunch of different strands of, of influence. And so, you know, all of these people, all of these belief systems, all of these uh, religions and, and groups of conspiracy believers, uh, what do you, you find that they're always fighting with each other. They're always accusing each other of being shills and, uh, right. uh, agents and things like that. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. I just, <laughs> uh, I think since we're asking questions like this, I'll, I'll just come out and say that, you know, I have no idea what is real. And I think that an honest person would have to say the same that so much of your reality can be manipulated from the outside. Everything from your understanding of history and current events to even, you know, a lot of people are, are questioning the shape of the globe or if there is a globe right now and is, is there outer space and are we in a simulation, uh, whether they think it's maybe a computer simulation like the Matrix or, um, you know, the Gnostics. And we talk about this a lot in the book, the Gnostic point of view. Um, they keep describing entities creating small universes within larger ones in a series so that we're all, we're in like a, a stacking doll system, you know, like the Russian dolls. Um, any of those things I think could be true. And, uh, you know, um, it, it, so I, it's like if I were to try to uh, promote one of those belief systems exclusively and and only research that one viewpoint i think you know yeah you're just deluding yourself because you just don't have the perspective you need to figure out you know for one thing what kind of system are you in and then who's running the system i i don't know so really um just to get back to the the baphomet subject i in, in a way um this is connected to that like you don't know who god is and what God's relationship to the devil is. And, you know, maybe they're friends, really, or maybe it's a complicated situation. You know, maybe <laughs> there's no uh, no straightforward answer. Maybe they've had a complicated relationship throughout time. And uh, it, that's what it seems from analyzing all the myths and legends that are connected, that we connect in the in the book. It does seem like that's really, uh, that's the heart of the mystery of Baphomet is in in a way he's the devil and yet he's a uh sort of a co a copy of the mind of god in a way because he contains the good and the evil within himself just like you would imagine god god's own mind somehow contains those things as well um so uh i i think that uh you know the study of of the baphomet subject which is very complicated for that very reason um kind of prepares your mind too for accepting the fact that you know you may be in a totally uh different reality than what what you see in front of your eyes and who you know who are the villains and who are the heroes in this story I don't think you could possibly know that's a really good way of putting it and um but we'll still get people saying you know uh put it trying to force us into a corner and say it's the Jews stupid you know what I mean you've heard that expression but I don't necessarily think that it is possible to actually uh, discern what's going on. And I think that you're doing probably the closest thing to actually discovering what's actually going on, as you just elucidated right now. 
So I, are we, are I really appreciate that. About the videos that you did. Yeah, please do. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, well, what does that tell you? What the, the, the proposal that you put forward in those videos that nuclear weapons are fake. Now you were basing that on observations of the, the film footage from the tests, right? Uh, that that and intuition, and also kind of an analysis of like the the um, Rob the Oppenheimer uh, statements, and just the all the general kind of mythos surrounding all the nuclear nuclear mythology. You know, it just it just snapped in my head. I just thought, wait a second, you know. Okay, so around the time that I saw your videos, which coincidentally, I, I think it's weird. Okay, you know, I I um. Uh, I had never heard of you before you contacted me a week ago uh, or two weeks ago, whenever it was to, for an interview. Um, but I had about a year and a half ago seen this video of yours the, the, about the nuclear weapons. Nuclize. Nuclize. It was all part of a, you know, investigation I was doing at the time into uh, this, this uh, way of thinking where people are questioning nuclear science, not only the weapons, but just the, the whole model of the atom and the subatomic particles supposedly in it uh that you know so many resources are invested in supposedly uh pursuing this line of science obviously everyone in school is learning it and yet there's people that question it and so i was i was uh learning about that stuff about a year and a half ago and uh, i just thought i thought it was interesting that you know you contacted me and i'm not saying that you know obviously i'm i don't know a lot of what's going on so the fact that i didn't recognize your name doesn't mean you're not famous it just means that <laughs> I'm, out, I'm out of it right what is fame yeah, anymore but, everybody's famous on on google now we all have our little knowledge graphs don't we <laughs> exactly so but i thought it was uh, amazing uh, you know i was just getting back into thinking about this stuff really after after uh, ignoring it for a while when you contacted me. So um, one of the other things I watched around that same time was, yeah, this lecture by a guy who was saying the atom essentially doesn't exist. I mean, the atom is the uh, smallest particle there is, and there's nothing inside of it. And, uh, you know, I'm simplifying what he was saying, but he gave a, you know, hour and a half long lecture about it. And uh, I thought it was very interesting. And then I ended up, Finding some modern people, because that, that was like in the 50s, I think this guy was giving this lecture. Um, then I found some modern people who were specifically arguing about the expenditure of money that's happening at CERN right now and how they think the whole thing is bullshit. And mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, they're just spending money and then they come out with these reports about what they supposedly saw <laughs> and that they're not really doing what they say they're doing because, in his mind, it, you know, it was not possible. And, and really what I, what I gathered from all of these um, lectures that I saw was that uh, really physics, especially physics of things that you can't really see, and that is, you know, quantum physics and then even astrophysics, you know, suppose we're getting all of our information from these probes, supposedly, and then it turns out a lot of that stuff is really, you know, artists putting together stuff supposedly based on data, but not actually a photograph. Uh, so, you know, it, it seems like everything really that we know about science is just someone building a model to explain some data. And 
you could build a different model to explain the same data and, you know, present either one of them to someone and tell them this is the world you live in and they would believe either one of them, whichever one they were taught first. That's what they would believe. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that's kind of the case, it, you know, I, I don't think they know much, especially about the uh, the subatomic particles. I mean, they've. I'm not saying that they don't have lots of data, but again, they're sort of trying to put some sort of sense or order over it. And every time they build a model, um, you know, they look harder, and you know, they find that oh well, that that model doesn't explain this, this, and this. It's like me, because I'm not any kind of math genius. When I try to do a, a Rubik's Cube, um, you know, I'm playing with it, and I, I think I'm getting somewhere because I got all the red ones on one side. And then I look, and, oh, the other sides are totally messed up. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't really gotten anywhere. But, I, you know, for a minute, I thought that I did. And um, that's what I think a lot of science is, and also political science, where people are trying to figure out, you know, what the system is. And, and, and economics, yeah. Yes. And yeah, oh, it yeah. sounds it sounds like alchemy. We were, t you know, we were talking about how someone has a uh, a formula for how much money there is in the world, but it's kind of like quantum physics, like it's always changing so fast that it, you know, the number isn't really real. It's what when once you come up with a number, it's actually different. You know, that's the number of what it was forty minutes ago, not now. In fact, they have three different numbers. Because like one's the amount of there's M1, M2, and M3. So one's the amount of cash, and one's the amount of credit, and then I think another one is like derivatives and stuff like that. So an even broader system of credit. Well, I have a uh, theory I'd like to share with you. It's I've long had this this kind of maxim or whatever it is. It's um that an atom is a solar system, infinity uh -huh. in both directions. That's yeah. my theory on it, and I've 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 long held that <laughs> just to share that with you. No, I yeah, I've thought that uh, myself, and uh, you know, yeah, I wondered if we're our solar system is an atom in someone else's world. That's possible. Um, so let's let's skip ahead to chapter two. We've discussed uh, chapter one, and chapter two is seed of the serpent. So what is that about? Well, that that's when we really get into sort of the the meaning of Baphomet and uh, what I was talking about about the uh, the unity of good and evil that he seems to represent. And again, I'm using the word he just sort of as a placeholder term. It's really a, a hermaphroditic being. The uh, Eliphas Levi depicted him that way, and that is, in fact, uh, the origin of it. Because what it seems to me is that the Baphomet spirit is based on this, this creature that, according to Kabbalistic legend, existed in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve. And in a way, Adam and Eve are sort of a product of it as well. But the Kabbalistic stories talk about this creature that they call the other god or the beast, and that it's hermaphroditic. The male side is this demon called Samael, and the female side is a demoness called Lilith. And they are equated also with Leviathan or with uh, a, a similarly uh, hermaphroditic uh, being called, uh, e either you can refer to it as Leviathan in total or another way of looking at it according to these Kabbalist legends is uh, the male side of it is Behemoth. 
the uh, female side of it is Leviathan. Basically, uh, it, again, symbolized always as a serpent or um, dragon, uh, you know, some sort of reptilian giant monster, basically, that that is hermaphroditic. And they talk about how he, um, the, the male side, seduced Eve in the garden. And so that their their encounter with the serpent in the Garden of Eden is really an encounter with this creature. And uh, it... Their, their sexual experiences that they had initially in the garden were with this creatures. And, uh, and then it was only afterwards that Adam and Eve bred with each other and, uh, and, you know, had their own children. But um, some of the legends actually say that Cain was the, the uh, son of this serpent having sex with Eve. So, uh, and then there's, a, there's a other Kabbalistic legends too, talking about Adam and Eve originally being one, uh, one hermaphroditic being two, and th that they were split apart. And that was part of the fall, really, was them splitting apart. So uh, it's all very complicated because we're talking about something that really it's a legend, but it's you know um, our our best way I think of trying to tell the story of of what happened here. It's it's uh, kind of the beginning of creation because they you know they tell the whole story about the creation of the earth and. Um, you know, describing it as coming out of nothing, but, uh, but then, you know, very quickly in Genesis, you get to the details of what's going on supposedly in this garden as they describe it on earth. So, uh, I don't know what the garden was. I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I, these are all metaphors for something. Um, it's some kind of enclosure where the, elements of creation were worked with and part of in order to you know to create something first you have something that's sort of a simple uh, energy i guess is probably what it was and it was worked over until it became creation and uh part of the process involved the splitting apart from something that was a unified force into two opposing forces and that is remembered as these uh, hermaphroditic beings being split apart. Now, um, the story of Adam and Eve being split apart, th this is actually in the in Genesis. Uh, there's actually two creation stories. So they tell the story of Adam and Eve, and they, it, it really kind of describes them as being one thing. Um, and then the story is told over again in the next chapter, where they're they're more seem like more autonomous beings and you know first it, it, it says that she, uh, she's brought out of his rib but other than that the whole uh, hermaphroditic uh, aspect of them is kind of ignored in the second telling in genesis of the creation of of man but as far as this uh this other being um lilith the whole i th i think the first telling of uh of creation that that makes man and woman seem to be one entity uh, i think that sort of alludes to the existence of this this lilith samael figure but the real detail of it is told more in extra biblical texts and kabbalist texts and things like that where uh they, they talked about this being it's really this is satan right this is the serpent but um it's a lot more detail into satan than most people will give you you know most people when they think of satan it's really sort of a very simple thing i think this is a a, a more detailed look at this spirit and uh you know um 
that one of the one of the interesting things is the description of how that that serpent was split apart. So the story goes that God um, split them apart so that they couldn't be united, and specifically so that they couldn't breed. Somehow that prevented them from breeding. Um, and that they're, but they're always trying to get back together and and to so that they can have sex and breed. You know, that's their uh, that's their motivation. Uh, but God, but the story is that God uh, separated them and stopped them from breeding to save the universe somehow. That if they kept breeding, it would it would annihilate the universe. And if they're allowed to ever unite again, it will annihilate the universe. So um, that's sort of the story about about Samael and Lilith, and um, that. So that chapter explores that topic, and then as we go throughout the book. We'll return to it again and uh, really connect it to the rituals that the Knights Templar were doing. Um, okay. A lot of it having to do with uh, Gnosticism and or in, influenced by Gnostic uh, beliefs and rituals. But um, it seemed to me, especially if you take seriously the uh, the drawings that were published by Joseph von Hammer Pergstall in that book that I mentioned in the previous hour, the, the Latin book, Mysterium Baphometus Revelatum. Uh, he shows all these uh, images from rituals that they were doing, supposedly, uh, sex rituals and things like that. And, and some of them involve this serpent. You can see her in, in the trees. Uh, there's a depiction of the Garden of Eden in one of these pictures. And then, like I said, all of these uh, interesting uh sex rituals involving bestiality and homosexuality and uh i think really that the templars of course were accused of doing things like this and they confessed to some of it um it seems to me that that some of the sex rituals that were done by templars then later done by uh, uh witchcraft cults and um in, in other secret societies that do sex rituals, and 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 before that there were the uh, certain Gnostic sects that were accused of doing similar sex rituals. Uh, it seems to me that it's really about channeling these spirits and allowing them to uh, have unity through the bodies of the participants. So, uh, in according to the Kabbalistic stories. Um, like I said, uh, Lilith and Samael can't unite sexually, but they have this intermediary that they use called Tanniniver. It, it, uh, that they just describe it as an intermediary somehow. This allows them to have some kind of semblance of of sex. You know, it's like a virtual reality suit or something. Uh, when I first heard about it, I thought it was like a dildo or something, but. And then I thought about it more, and I thought, well, no, it's like a VR suit. And and then I thought, well, actually, it's like uh, it's like being, you know, a person being possessed, and and the spirits get to have sex with each other through the bodies of the people who are possessed. And the more I uh, looked at that angle, and the more I found that you know that's in fact explicitly what is said about what is being done in a lot of uh, sex rituals, even old you know pagan rituals where they would sort of invoke uh you know the spirit of the sun or the moon and and uh have have sex in order to um supposedly create fertility in the land and things like that um well again you know you have the the description of someone being possessed and and, and letting the spirits have sex through them so this is kind of what i think might be going on in some of these rituals 
and uh, I, th you know, I think they might be motivated by their contact with these spirits, and the spirits are actually telling them to do this. Uh, so, you know, that I guess that's kind of what we get into in that chapter is all about um, uh, the, the the origin of the mythology of a a serpent or a Satan figure that's actually hermaphroditic. And also, there's when we talk about the seed of the serpent, we're talking about the idea that there's a bloodline coming from this, that they uh, these creatures actually bred with humans. Um, and that is part of the whole mythology of Lilith, is that because she misses her sex partner and, you know, she is longing all the time for that, uh, she she unites with human men instead and supposedly comes with come comes to them in their dreams. And, you know, so if you have a wet dream at night, it's really supposedly Lilith visiting you at night. And, uh, you know, all these stories, stories of, uh, incubuses and succubuses, uh, are, you know, connected to this idea that these spirits will visit people at night to have sex with them. And specifically with Lilith, there are these stories that she did this with several important people in the early chapters of the Torah that, uh, you know, several of the main characters really in the Bible are descendants of Lilith and including um, some of the uh, children of Solomon and people uh, in his family. So there's a story about um, a demon called Asmodeus who's um, – According to the Kabbalists, either the the son or brother of of Samael and Lilith, he's he's directly you know in the family line there. And uh, Asmodeus, there's a story that he took over Solomon's throne at one point and pretended to be Solomon, and Solomon was exiled somewhere else while this demon reigned in his steed. And really, I think that's a myth alluding to the the fact that there are um, you know people in what is supposedly a, a history, you know, there in the Bible that are, are the story about them is that they're, they're part demon. They're part, uh, they're, they're heirs to Lilith. So what it seems like is that Lilith, if you were to take these stories seriously, she's trying to put her own bloodline into that line of inheritance that, you know, you see coming from Adam and supposedly going all the way, you know, through the patriarchs of the Bible, through David and Solomon, going all the way to Jesus, ultimately. Um, so it goes along with the idea that, you know, the, the devil felt um, usurped by man. Uh, and in the Quran, they talk about this, that, uh, that God asked Satan to bow down to man. And uh, he refused. He, he thought it's wrong to bow down to anything other than God and that man was less than him. And so why should he have to bow down to man? Um, and really, the, the Quran says that this is the origin of the whole uh, problem between God and Satan is this this uh, conflict over the love of man and giving homage to mankind. And it really uh, the the devil felt like something that was his his possession his inheritance was given to man when uh man was given this creation so uh the the attempt by the spirits connected to Samael and Lilith to uh to incarnate in these human bodies um specifically these these uh people that are inheritors of this divine lineage going back to Adam 
it's a way of trying to put their own children in line for those thrones, the thrones of the earth, really. Um, and then that, this connects with the, the conspiracy of the Templars that came later. I, I actually made a, a video called The Sacred Hermaphrodite, and I believe that they actually worship a sacred hermaphrodite. Do you think that that's the same thing as what you're talking about? Yes. Uh, what, what do you mean by they? Who? These people, the, the, the Merovingians, the people in charge, the, the, the people we don't know who they are. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, um, yes, I think that this spirit uh, that we identify in the book is Baphomet. And that is uh, talked about in these Kabbalistic legends. Again, I said they called him the other god or the great beast. Obviously, that's the same as the dragon in Revelation. Uh, but but they're talking about him as being so monolithic. The only thing that could possibly be bigger than him really is God. And in a way, he's like a little version of God. And yet he's the devil. Um, yes, this is, I think about as high as you can get almost when you're exploring these um, these spiritual realms. So I think that these people who are involved in these most powerful secret societies, the ones that are actually talking to the patrons of their orders and, you know, actually doing deals with, with uh, invisible spirits. Um, yeah. I think a lot of them are talking to this creature that we're talking about and yeah, you can call him Baphomet. You could call him uh the um yeah a hermaph it's definitely a hermaphrodite so yeah i i keep saying him and it's almost um it's confusing because yeah it's definitely a hermaphroditic being and really it's almost like these things it, 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 he's just one of uh of perhaps more than perhaps several beings that are from a realm where uh sex differences don't apply um you know, the way they describe the Garden of Eden, it seems like it's an encapsulated place. And then we were, uh, or Adam and Eve were kicked out of that and into some larger space. But still, uh, I think we're enclosed somehow in, you know, a broader reality than what we can see. And I think what we, what we know here is normal, which is, you know, the passage of time linearly and breeding sexually between two different uh, beings that are different, you know, sexually different but compatible. I think that's a uh, pro that's the product and the earmark of the reality that we're in. But there's other stuff beyond that. So when you touch uh, something beyond that, when you speak to something that's beyond that, you're going to perceive it as being hermaphroditic. That's one of the first things you're going to notice is they have the elements of both male and female within themselves. Because here it's normal for us those things to be separate, but over there it's not. Well, actually, um, can I ask you actually a personal question? Because first of all, I've always actually felt like I had a balance in between the genders spiritually. I don't know how to explain that further, but that's always I've always just kind of known that. I mean, like, have you have you known anybody? Do you feel like that yourself by any chance, or have you known anybody that's told said that to you? Oh, sure, and you know, I think that's uh, really a product of uh, spiritual progress, or even just intellectual progress. Knowing yourself, uh, you know, know, getting to know, having a deeper understanding of of the world and reality is, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, you can see from the way that fetuses develop that you know, the sex differences appear over time, so you obviously are something else before that happens to you. Mm, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 um, 
wouldn't say it's uh, it's fake or something. But it, I'm not going to say it's not real. But in order to have a deeper understanding of yourself, I think, and also other living beings, and even perhaps non-living beings, you have to uh, realize that, yes, yeah, sexuality is just an attribute. It's not the real person inside. And right. uh, I think it's really also it's a product of time and space. This is what I was about to get at. Uh, the story of the Garden of Eden is the story of our reality coalescing into what it is from something else. So it came from something that was, to our perception, transcendental, something, a seed that contained all the possibilities of what would eventually be created. But it had to, it had to fall apart. The, 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 that egg had to crack open, and all of the things it contained had to um, separate from each other. And that includes the, all of these polarities such as male and female, and that the knowledge that Adam and Eve came to, that's given to them by the serpent in the garden, was, the, was carnal knowledge. That's the knowledge of sexuality and generation. And generation can only happen right. over time. And so all, that's why the story is so confused and why it's really hard to tell what happened in the garden in a linear fashion. It's like, they had the knowledge, and then all of a sudden they were they fell. The reality around them changed. All of a sudden, Eve is pregnant. They don't actually describe the sex. Uh, what happened there? Well, it all, it all happened all at the same time, and all in the same instant. Uh, time was created, and sex was created at the same time because it's all connected. You can't have one without the other, really. So uh, that's what I think. We're living in a world that's uh, that's defined by time and the d divisions of sex, and but w what we came from didn't have that, and you know that's where um, I think uh, the the Gnostic stories are very informative because all of the archons in Gnosticism, uh, which are basically the the beings that created the the world that we're in, uh, they're all hermaphroditic. Are they? And uh, yes, and the aeons that they create, it's interesting their description of aeons. Like they create aeons, which are like universes, but they also are described as being herma hermaphroditic. It's like they're alive. And, uh, and, and they have the attributes of both sex. And it's only when you get into the uh, present aeon that we're in, um, which is considered a fallen one, that, that you get these uh, sexual divisions. And you know time and space as we know it. So that in, and of course I'm generalizing here because there were a lot of uh, different Gnostic sects and beliefs, but these are some of the commonalities between most of them. Well, then, uh, it, then I, I might not be wrong for worshiping, for calling my god the sacred hermaphrodite, which I've been doing for years now, and <laughs> I, don't, I haven't told too many people that, but you know, but um, okay. So what about the Nephilim? Because people will obviously want to see how that connects to what you're talking about. Well, it's totally connected. I mean, the, the, the serpent um, is just in that particular version of the story, you know, it's, it's described as being one character. And then, you know, the, the uh, Nephilim. Okay. So yes, I was saying that, that the story about the serpent is really just a version of the story where, where the Nephilim, are all identified as one character. He represents a larger subject too, a, a larger group of uh, beings. So, you know, the, uh, like I was saying, uh, I, I think that in the early, 
the earliest stories in the Bible, so everything that's going on in Genesis, a lot of it is just retelling the same thing in different ways. So like the the story of creation, the story of the flood, the story of the the uh, Tower of Babel, and then this uh, story of the story of the Nephilim is sort of just dealt with very briefly in actual Genesis, you know, uh, right before the flood. I mean, there's, uh, it says that uh, the flood was uh, caused by God deliberately to cleanse the earth of these uh, hybrid creatures that had been, that were born from angels that decided, well, actually it doesn't even go that into that much detail in uh, Genesis. It just says the sons of God uh, united with humans and then there was these giants that uh, came from that, and and uh, they were rapacious and uh, you know consumed too many resources, and uh, so he decided to cleanse the earth of them. Um, and really, that's is the story of the Garden of Eden is just that same story, but in very very shortened and uh, you know with single characters representing large groups of people. So Adam right. and Eve, that's human humanity, and the serpent, that's this other uh, race of beings, with whatever they are. And just you know the the the, the meaning of the myth is that you have uh, one being or set of beings that for whatever reason chose to uh, illuminate humanity with some sort of knowledge about what God was creating, I guess. Right. Uh, but at the same time is plotting against us in a way. And so, yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's push on to the next chapter, the goat faced wild man. What What's that about? It, okay. Well that, and also the, uh, the following chapter, these are really the three hermeses um, is this, this following chapter. Okay. Right. So uh, those two chapters we're, we're really dealing with, the myth of Hermes and the myths of, uh, you know, half goat entities. Uh, it, and I'm talking about myths from all over the world um, and, and how that uh, influenced the eventual, um, I guess, mythology or, or the perception of Baphomet. So actually that first chapter, the goat faced wild man is really, yeah, it's about Pan and Hermes and, uh, the, these goat-faced uh, figures in mythology. There was like there was Bis in Egypt, right? Bess. Which one? B I S or something? Yeah. Yeah, that's another one. So um, there's several things that these characters, a lot of them, have in common. So you've got, on the one hand, they are teachers, and in fact, often the uh, authors of the inventors of writing. Uh, so you've got Thoth in Egypt and, you know, Mercury or Hermes uh, in the Western world. And, uh, and, okay, then the Babylonians have Nebu and, uh, I don't know, there were several of them in the chapter that we, uh, we oh, and then another important uh, ca character to, to point out is uh, Enoch, or and called Idris by the Muslims, uh, really often connected with Hermes. Um, all these characters uh, associated with, uh, like I said, writing, the origin of writing, teaching mankind, not only writing, but also just philosophy and, and thinking and science. Um, these characters are often thought of as basically the primordial and, and quintessential teacher 
from, you know, from the gods to humanity. And yet at the same time, they will also be associated with this sort of uh, idea of wildness. Uh, they're like outcasts, kind of like the scapegoat symbolism. They somehow come from, you know, outside of our, our world. They represent some sort of wilderness, someone uh, depicted as someone who uh you know lives in the wilderness and only visits occasionally the uh pan in particular is associated with um sort of insanity that you know when when you encounter pan he he will you know drive you crazy but at the same time enlighten you uh with some sort of uh transcendental knowledge and um so yeah that i guess the purpose of that chapter is to point out that there this is a a uh, archetype that it seems seems to have influenced the the um, trappings that are surrounding the image of Baphomet. That uh, yeah, it's a wild figure associated with fertility, also you know, and uh, uh, debaucherous sex rituals. And yet at the same time, it's it, you know, it's a teaching entity. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that's what we deal with in that chapter. And then um, and then mo moving on to divine knowledge, chapter five. Sure. Well, um, then that's that's mainly about uh, the Gnostic uh, stories that we were talking about. <laughs> so um, giving sort of the history of Gnosticism, explaining the um, the worldview that those groups seem to have uh, held and how that would connect with the uh, with the development of the idea of Baphomet, because it does seem that the Templars were. Uh, um, initiated to, to some extent in some of the mysteries of Gnosticism. And then uh, the, the chapter that comes right after that, Head of Prophecy, is all about John the Baptist, who is considered really the um, progenitor in a lot of ways of Gnosticism. A, a lot of uh, people consider uh, the Gospel of John to be a Gnostic text and at, and it's also considered it's possible that if, if he if John the Baptist himself didn't write it, someone who was part of his cult did. Why why so is that? Why is that? And what is the significance of it? Because John the Baptist is obviously the most interesting, intriguing figure in Christianity, really. Well, and he uh, connects with this uh, this archetype that we were talking about of uh, a teacher in the wilderness. So I mean, that's literally what oh, he was right, described as. Right. And wearing, uh, you know. Uh, furs and uh, basically uh, eating locusts and, and living out in the wilderness. Um, but he was also kind of, uh, you know, a crazed prophet. He would have these uh, visions and, um, you know, was trying to, trying to teach people what was going on the way he saw it. But he, in, in a way, he seems to be kind of a, you know, a nut, kind of a crazy person. I mean, I'm not putting him down, but I'm just saying that that's the sort of uh, personality that and the, and the archetype that he embodied. But um, uh, he had this uh, cult, you know, and, and the cult existed before Jesus's group did. And uh, in fact, it made a, a bigger impact on history, really, uh, at, at least at the time, because we have, you know, records of John the Baptist and his influence, uh, contemporary records that we don't have of Jesus. Oh, interesting. But, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Josephus talks about John the Baptist. He doesn't talk about Jesus. Um, but so John, uh, had these interesting people who were members of his group 
And um, these people went on to found Gnostic cults. One of them was Simon Magus, who uh, is, you know, villainized in Christianity. He's viewed as this uh, a person. Actually, the word simony comes from this character, Simon Magus. He's a person who tried to purchase the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, and then was rejected, you know, uh, by the apostles and uh, ended up find, founding his own cult. But um, non-Christians or people, I guess, who are more in, uh, you know, Western occult tradition look to Simon Magus as sort of a, uh, you know, a father figure. And he's viewed as uh, really the, the founder of Gnosticism. And then he had a, he had a, a student called um, Docetesis, I think. And that person went on to found uh, Gnostic groups also. So you can trace the um, lineage of Gnosticism, really, uh, through Simon Magus and then back to John the Baptist. And what's uh, what another thing that connects, obviously, with uh, the subject of Baphomet is that uh, the actual idol that the Templars worshipped was a severed head, uh, a skull, and, and sometimes described as actually a mummified head, so it might have still had the skin on it. And uh, the, some of the, the theories about which head it was, uh, a lot of them, uh, people theorized that it was actually the head of John the Baptist. Now, there were several relics, and there still are three at least, and historically there have been more than that, uh, relics that are, uh, so, that are uh, said to be that of John the Baptist, John's head. But, and actually, crusading knights were responsible for at least two of those heads being uh, found and placed where they are now. So the Templars were involved in the trade of relics. And it's entirely possible that they uh, came across something that they believed was the head of John the Baptist. And there's a um, tradition, actually, um, in Egyptian magic that uh, if, you, if you have the head of a prophet, then you can you know, turn it into a slave to you, basically. You can make that, that prophet's spirit be imprisoned inside of the head and then force it to give you information and do things for you. So, uh, you know, our theory was, well, maybe that's what was done with John's head, and then eventually that uh, magical relic ended up in the hands of the Templars, and they, they used it. Because uh, the story of John the Baptist in the Bible is, you know, that uh, this political enemy basically um, had him, had his head decapitated, and then they put it on a charger, on a plate. Was it, was it not Salome in the Bible? Salome that yes. had, yeah. So that's the occult Salome. explanation for the Salome myth, myth then, or story. Right. Yeah, so, so it was Salome and uh, her daughter Herodias was the dancer. Salome was the one who wanted the head. And there's really no explanation given about why she wanted it presented that way specifically. I mean, you just assume, well, she, she hated him and she wanted to, you know, to be given the head so that she could you know, feel like she had victory over this person. But I'm thinking more that it was used for a magical purpose. Actually, the family that she came from, the Herod family, uh, they had converted to Judaism recently, but and had been forced to convert. But their their heritage was in magic and paganism. So uh, I, you know, I think it's entirely possible that she was, you know, aware of how to use 
a severed head. They're actually called teraphs in the Bible. And uh, this is, uh, or teraphim is the plural. Uh, this is something that um, there's several traditions about in the Middle East, several um, stories that you can find relating to this subject, that you can use a severed head for divination. And you embalm it, and then you put uh, magical curses on a on a parchment or something and shove it inside of the, the head's mouth, and then it will start prophesying for you. And that's exactly what the Baphomet head is described as. So that's kind of what I think it was. I don't know if it was John's head or not, but I think it's entirely possible. It would go along with the, the you know, mythology that... <clears throat> Yeah, we have surrounding Baphomet, really. Yeah, and what it would also explain why why John is you know the, John is a patron to the Templars and also to the Freemasons. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh. And why uh, why did Salome make love to the head? Right? She she supposedly made or to his dead body or something. Uh, I'm I'm not familiar with that one. No, she uh, her daughter did some kind of dance, sexy dance in front of uh, the king, and then demanded that well he was so pleased about her sexy dance that he promised he would do anything for her and then she being prompted by her mother asked for john the baptist's head and then it just says it you know it doesn't go into any detail really about the presentation of the head or anything but but it was she specifically asked for the head to be placed on a charger and that's where the story ends in in scripture so it doesn't say that you know what was done with the head afterwards. Oh, but okay. Because on a charger, to me, seems like what they used to do with these tear-off heads, where they would mount it on some kind of plaque and then then put it on the wall. Oh, right, right. It, the, I, I'm mixing up uh, Salome by Oscar Wilde with what you're talking about from the biblical <laughs> account. So, okay. Um, so let's yeah. So let's uh, move on to um, the baptism of wisdom, chapter seven. All right, so this is where um, I really uh, analyze and speculate about what was the so-called baptism of wisdom. This is the um, the probably most common and best etymological breakdown of the meaning of the word baphomet, that it means baptism of wisdom. And this goes along with um, rituals that have been done by Gnostic groups and proto-Gnostic groups. So uh, the John the Baptist followers actually, you know, they they practiced uh, um, baptism, and they were part of basically a wisdom mystery cult. Uh, so it, it seems like you know the the word could even be applied to the types of baptisms that John was doing. But long before that, there was this group called, uh, well, not not necessarily before that, but there's this group called the Sabians, um, from. Iraq. And uh, these people also practice something uh, that they call the, the, the translates essentially to baptism of wisdom or divert immersion in the divine mystery. And so uh, you have several different traditions of people going through baptism rituals and associating that with uh, obtaining wisdom. And in, in fact, uh, the the immersion in water itself connects to this idea because chaos and wisdom both uh, are are represented as water in um, you know a, a variety of different mythological systems. It's it's very very common the idea that we can, you know creation came out of chaos, but that but that chaos is represented as water 
And then also that it contains wisdom and getting to know the chaos that creation came from is obtaining wisdom. Uh, and I think that's kind of what, uh, what the Templars were doing also. I think they had a darker version of the baptism uh, than what was being practiced by some of these other groups. Another, uh, another very overt reference to something similar to the – that seems like the baptism of wisdom is in the Corpus Hermeticum where uh, Hermes is instructing one of his students, and he tells him that, that God put wisdom in a, in a bowl, and instead of giving it to everyone – he just put it in a bowl, and then he, he uh, brought that bowl down from heaven and, and made everyone compete for access to the bowl of wisdom. And then not everyone uh, even tried to have access to the bowl of wisdom. Only those that were brave enough uh, would access the bowl of wisdom and submerge themselves in it. And he instructed his uh, student that if he felt like he had the uh, strong enough constitution to withstand the immersion in the wisdom, then he should try it. That uh, basically the idea is that somehow this is going to tear you apart. But if you think that you can put yourself back together, you know, once you get uh, get out of the immersion into wisdom, then uh, then you know you'll be, you'll be made a stronger person by doing that. So, um, so that definitely seems to me to be. I think that they're describing very well what the baptism of wisdom is at core. It's some sort of contact with the chaos and the wisdom that exists out there beyond our current reality that we came from. And I think these serpent creatures, like uh, you know, the, the uh, Samael Lilith creature that I was talking about before, Baphomet, I think they represent a... Uh, a point of contact from you know from that other side from the chaos that we came from they they possess the wisdom of that chaos and if you contact them you can be immersed in that as well and obtain that wisdom as well now the templars and what they were doing i specifically think that involved sexual rituals and blasphemous rituals and i'm i'm taking that from their confessions from the uh traditions that supposedly came out of Templarism afterwards, so analyzing Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism and even, you know, the OTO and all the Aleister Crowley people uh, and the kind of stuff that they do. Um, it seems like in the Templars were most likely doing sex rituals as part of the baptism of wisdom and that they were actually, uh, like I said before, uh, conjuring and then being possessed by these spirits from the chaos realm and uh, then having sex with each other so that those the spirits they're possessed by could have sex with each other. And what is the purpose of this? What was the purpose of this? I think they felt that it empowered them. And also, uh, I specifically think that it was a ritual to uh supposedly bring down creation in a way or at least the creation that we're in uh and and this you kind of have to read the book to follow it but um I'll just go ahead and spoil it a little bit basically I'm decoding these images that Hammer Pergstall found on the the alleged Templar properties in Europe 
And it seems like one of them, uh, one of the recurring images is of a woman uh, that he thinks is Baphomet because it's, she also has uh, male genitals and, and a beard in a lot of the pictures. And she's pulling down the sun and the moon and the stars from chains that are dangling from the, from the sky. She's pulling on these chains and the sun and the moon are coming down. They're upside down. They're on their way down. Uh, I think that, you know, if, okay, if you look at the world the way that uh, ancient man did, and even, you know, in Templar times, he still really, really kind of looked at the world this way that, uh, you know, they're, they're on a, a, an earth being that the, the planets are, you know, orbiting around us. I don't even think they thought of them as planets in outer space the way that we do now. They just thought there were these lights in the sky. There are these layers, there are several heavens, and each uh, each planet is, uh, you know, the ruler of one of those heavens. So what we're, we call orbits, they describe them as being different layers of existence, you know, different realms. And uh, that there's a you know, firmament uh, separating us from all of that. And we're encapsulated in this little Petri dish kind of, you know. and uh, so. The idea of bringing down the heavens, for one thing, it seemed a lot more possible back then because they were thinking about a much smaller universe than what we think of. And uh, and for an another thing, you know, why would they be interested in doing that? Well, if they are practicing Gnostic rituals, which there's quite a lot of evidence they were, most of the Gnostic sects really had an anti-creationist perspective. So they saw the cre the God that created us as being a villain and the world we're in as a prison and the the uh, archons were the planets that i just described those planets were thought of as being rulers that you know were uh keeping us imprisoned and the chains are the 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 chains connecting us to them the the planets rule our fate and so they control us we're enchained by them and what this image is that i'm describing from the templar properties is someone, you know, specifically this Baphomet character, uh, taking the chains off and then using the chains to pull those archons, those planets, directly down from the heavens and dethrone them. And uh, so I think that they were, the Templars were sympathetic to that point of view. They uh, maybe thought that they were in contact with someone that was going to dethrone God and, you know, set himself up as the new God and you know, th th that that would somehow benefit them by serving him. Wow. So, so I, that, yeah, you go ahead. Yeah. That, that also sounds like a uh, Kundalini yoga as well. Bringing down from the, the thousand petal Lotus via the chakras into the lumbar chakra or something like that, pulling energy yeah. down. And then also the tree, the Kabbalistic tree of life sounds similar to what you're describing as well. Yes. And actually um, a lot of detail corresponds here with, Golden Dawn rituals, because if you read the literature that goes along with the Golden Dawn rituals, that uh, explains not only the rituals themselves, but the, the meaning behind them, uh, they, they go through this pantomime of, uh, you know, reliving what happened supposedly in the Garden of Eden. And they describe this, what they call supernal Eden. Uh, is 
basically that okay they they have this tree of life that's i guess the creation that we're in being supported on the shoulders of adam and eve they're like holding the whole thing up and then they tell the story about how eve bent down to pick something up and that caused the whole thing to collapse the, all all of the the stuff that was riding on her shoulders collapsed and that was the fall from eden and uh then they they Oh, it, it has something to do with a uh, a serpent also coming up from the bottom. Is that the is that the ritual they call a five equals six, where they initiate the people in Golden Dawn? I can't remember which ritual it is exactly. And it, actually, I read through a series of them. So, I, uh, but and they all kind of go together. Yeah. So I I don't remember exactly which ritual I'm talking about right now, but uh, the, the story I remember the the story that's told, and it's um. Uh, that this okay the the tree had sort of collapsed the the structure on her shoulders had collapsed and then the uh the serpent was coming up from below to try to uh swallow and uh infilt and then infiltrate eden that which is kind of the thing at the top um i guess that's where god lives and so in order to save uh the most sacred part of eden uh, God walled it off, walled off the supernal Eden from everything else. So that's the, it corresponds to in um, in Genesis. You know they talk about uh, right after Eve ate the apple, God uh, kicked them out of Eden and surrounded it with what he called a flaming sword. And uh, in this Golden Dawn story, yeah, that's they're describing that you know most of Eden was walled off from this, you know, inner sacred core called the supernal Eden. And that was to protect it from the serpent. So, um, well, that, that sounds good. It sounds like maybe there's still Eden left then. Yes, exactly. But there's this idea that, uh, there's, yeah, there's this part that the bad guys are always trying to penetrate. (laughs) And, you know, that would go along with the story in the entire tower of Babel, right? They, uh, someone's trying to, uh, build a tower that's high enough to storm heaven. In other words, right. if you were to view us as being in some sort of encapsulated system and there's some reality beyond this that we can't see, those guys were trying to build a tower big enough to pierce the top and, and see what was actually going on outside of us. And hence they were um, punished by God. Exactly, exactly. But but yeah, so uh, um, I forgot where we were going with well, this. Well, let's yeah, let's that, move on. Let's move on to chapter eight, Abraxas, secret of the temple. Okay, so that is uh, all about Abraxas. Is this? Uh, it's a Gnostic entity and idea. It's sort of a later Gnostic entity and idea, and it um, comes from a, a tradition that's really syncretistic. So it's it's not from any particular pure Gnostic sect. It's influenced by a lot of other, uh, you know, um, Egyptian magic traditions and things like that. Abraxas is, in a way, uh, very similar to Baphomet. The symbolism is almost identical in a lot of ways. It's a creature that embodies good and evil, creation and destruction. Um, You know, it's, and it's uh, depicted as being uh chimera like just like uh, baphomet is both goat and human this uh abraxas has serpent legs a human torso and then a chicken head um 
and it was also uh, used really for protection. Like uh, people would wear an image of Abraxas as sort of a um, magical amulet of protection. The idea is that this creature is something that even the demons are afraid of. You know, just like uh, gargoyles would be used in churches. <laughs> uh, a, an image of something really scary is used to scare away all of the other scary things. So um, Abraxas is associated with protection and magic, magical transformation, and uh, you know the unity of polarities, just like Baphomet. And is and, that uh, that's the secret of the temple? Well, here's here's why because there's actually coins that were uh, minted by the Templars that have Abraxas on them, and they say in Latin around them, "Secret of the Temple." And uh, actually, by when I say coins, here's what I mean: they were seals. So they would uh, use these like notaries use, seal documents. You know, they would they would use these to seal letters and and things, treaties and and uh, correspondences between them and and other groups or other people. So uh, so you know, these things. There at least three of them have been found. One of them is in the British Museum. One of them is in the uh, French National Archives. Um, and they're they're similar. They you know you can tell that. Uh, that the, several of these existed at the time. So yeah, I'm looking at pictures right now and it has it, what you said. It has snakes for legs as two legs. And then it has a, what is it? A, some sort of bird as the head. And then it's a chicken. And you said it's like, it's a chicken, isn't it? And you said it's a chimera, yeah. right? It's so it's a, a composite God. And then it has a man's body, right? Yeah. It has a, a, a male torso that's kind of in armor. Like a, it's a soldier or something. And then it has a whip. It's always holding a right. scourge. So, and that's, it goes along with the idea that it's a protector, that you would invoke this entity for protection. So here's what uh, we think. For one thing, this is evidence, uh, uh, irrefutable evidence, that the Templars knew about Gnosticism and, and ritual magic, because that's what Abraxas was, a symbol of, at contemporary uh, with the Templars. There's no way it would have had any other meaning. And it's weird that they use this, actually, that they might have sealed documents that they uh, communicated with the church or the assassins or uh, a king or a prince or something. They'd seal a document with a picture of Abraxas. It's kind of strange, but it certainly uh, proves that they, they were influenced by Gnosticism. And also, I think, uh, that they were involved with ritual magic. I think that Abraxas is also another way of representing the same uh concept as baphomet so it's just like an indirect way of paying homage to the patron of their order uh by using the symbol of something else that represents the same thing and then uh i th we think also that this spirit might have actually been to them an entity protecting their temple and then this is something that we uh get into with the rest of the book the next chapters the last chapter called so Riding the Goat. Riding the Goat um, Current, right. Right. But, uh, and that's sort of a, a chapter. It has its own purpose, but it also uh, kind of summarizes the rest of the book too. Um, but one of the things we got into here at the end that, you know, is really too much of a subject to explore in this book, but it's what is Solomon's Temple? I mean, right, this is right, yeah. that the Templars named themselves after. And supposedly it's because they, were there on the uh, the site of what used to be Solomon's Temple. That was where their headquarters was. So this, 
the exoteric story is that's why they named themselves that. But there's a lot of uh, confusion about what that might mean. One of uh, one of the reasons is because there's really no um, physical evidence of Solomon's Temple. There's there are no foundations to be found uh, that actually correspond to that time period. We what about the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall? Well, that's a, the later temple. Oh, right, right. So, uh, yeah, so we have evidence of these other temples that were supposedly built to replace Solomon's Temple, but we've not found the actual Solomon's Temple. And so, you know, lots of people have speculated about what this means. One uh, angle, which I wrote about extensively, there's this guy, uh, you may have heard of him, calling himself Prince Michael of Albany. <laughs> no. He claims to be... He claims to be the rightful king of Scotland. It's, uh, okay. What he, he anyway, uh, but he and he's a Freemason, and is part of some kind of Templar neo Templar order too. Uh, but anyway, so his, one of his most recent books is about a document he supposedly found. Okay, in the in the library of his Masonic lodge, and this document supposedly said that the Templars made a secret mission to Mecca. And that they found Solomon's temple there. And the rest of it is a lot about how uh, a lot of the early Templars were influenced by Sufi Islam and uh, were from Islamic families. So uh, that's an interesting detail, too. And that's um, I, I got into that subject a little bit. Um, but as far as Solomon's temple, um, I think it's interesting, the idea that maybe it was in Mecca. Um, I'm really thinking that's it's not as simple as that. I think there's some meaning behind the idea of combining both Solomon's Temple and the the Kaaba in Mecca. Both of those things seem almost like mirror images of each other. And the Kaaba in Mecca is associated with a black stone and uh the Solomon's Temple supposedly rests on a stone also or you know did allegedly rest on a stone. And those stones are, are meteorites, right? They're betalises. Meteorites, well, right. well, yeah. Okay. For sure, the, um, the uh, one in, in Mecca is thought to be a meteorite. Uh, the one in uh, Solomon, in Jerusalem, the, the, the mosque that is there right now, um, actually not the mosque, but there's some other structure. I don't know. It's kind of confusing because I haven't actually been there, and there's like three different buildings that are on essentially, you know, the same plot of land here and that used to be Solomon's temple. And so one of them is a mosque and the other two aren't. Uh, but at any rate, um, there's a, a building uh, built over the uh, this what's called the foundation stone. And the story around it is that this is the first spot of creation, that everything else was built out from there. That's the navel of the world right there. And that if you drill down beneath it, you'll get into the the waters beneath the earth that supposedly the flood came from. And uh, and then below that is, you know, the underworld. Um, so anyway, uh, I think that uh, it's interesting. Like there's this story about Muhammad uh, supposedly going to sleep with his head on the stone at the, at the Kaaba. And then he you know, uh, projected his spirit and went out into the ether and rode a, a magical horse all the way over to uh, Jerusalem and visited the stone over there. And supposedly there's even hoof marks in the stone where Muhammad's horse uh, launched off from to take him back home. 
So uh, well, I guess what I'm saying is it seems to, like the, the stories about these two places link them together. And, um, and then when you look at um, Masonic rituals about it, okay, uh, first there's lots of Masonic rituals about Solomon's temple and depicting uh, the Templars digging beneath Solomon's temple to find treasures. Um, and then in, in Shriner masonry, which is uh, you know, sort of a modern invention, late 1800s, but definitely is a very important Masonic institution today. Um, they, all their rituals are about Mecca, going to Mecca, pretend, and they actually pretend that they're uh, that they're Templars and that they are uh, Muslims <laughs> going to Mecca and, find, and finding the black stone and paying homage to it. And here's what's interesting, okay? In that ritual, um, they tell the initiate to bend down and kiss the black stone which is what Muslims do at the Hajj, at mm -hmm. the Kaaba, right? Yeah. They, uh, then in the ritual afterwards, they tell the initiate, um, there have been many times in your life where you said that you would never kiss someone's ass. Well, look, you just kissed the black stone of Casper. Uh, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Now, obviously, the language there implies they're connecting, kissing the stone, the, the black stone, at Mecca with kissing an ass, and which is exactly ties it right back to Templar rituals. This whole thing about you know ass kissing, which is you find in uh, in other um, occult rituals from the Templars onward, it seems to have really originated with them. With, and, the, with, uh, the, with who the uh, the the Muslims? Templars. Well. Um, I guess. Well, yeah, but they're kissing a stone. Right. But here, but here uh, in uh, Western occult ritual. Oh, with the, the Shriners, Shriners, right? Yeah. They're connect. They're symbolically connecting it with butt kissing. So I don't know what it all means, but uh, you know, it's one of the things I thought of is just that you know, uh, Baphomet is always depicted sitting on this stone. The stone is thought oh, of as being yeah. like the alchemical stone. It's either sometimes shown as white, sometimes shown as black, but you know, it's like a throne. He, he's seated on it. It's a seat. Um, and God also sits on a throne that has, has magical, uh, stones beneath it. And there's know? this magical stone underneath the, uh, the throne of, of the queen of England as well. Exactly. Yes. Which is, uh, it's supposedly Jacob's pillow stone. It's a similar story to Muhammad. He fell asleep on this stone and then had this vision of a tower going to heaven so so do you yeah, think that stone could that stone be the philosopher's stone yes or the the the, uh, the symbolism is all connected i guess uh now what you know what is the real thing in any of these stories i don't know right but <laughs> yeah all i can yeah. find is just that these, these things are connected somehow and what about and, uh <laughs> sorry what about abraxas um uh and uh, uh baphomet are they the same thing do you think Kind of, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's like anything, like, you know, like I said, uh, that Baphomet is the devil. Well, yes, he is, but, uh, you know, Baphomet is a very specific uh, incarnation of the devil, you know. So I would say Baphomet and Abraxas are the same thing, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you can look at one or the other independently. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think that uh, ultimately what it comes down to, these, the, the Templars thought that they had encountered 
this power that was essentially equal to God, you know, that it may not be God himself, but it's doing all the same things that God does. And, uh, you know, some of them even might have had the hubris to imagine that they, you know, through through this power, they could uh, they could become God themselves, you know. So and, it's, a, it's uh, about apotheosis then. Yes, yes. And that's what <laughs> I think, uh, you know, all of these um, these traditions have always been about. Uh, yeah, try, trying to, uh, at, at, at the very least, gain the perspective and understanding of God. And, you know, also, I guess, for the more ambitious, trying to take the place of God. And, uh, you know, I also, I spe- this is something I speculated about in my previous book, Clock Shavings, where, you know, I got a lot of messages from Baphomet on the Ouija board about the end of the world and things like that. Uh, the apocalypse, the Antichrist. And he did seem to be indicating, here's, here's what it seemed like he was indicating, that we're in some kind of a ship, really, like you could, like Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is like a universe in itself. You know, if you think about it, uh, you know, he took all of the elements, Noah took all of the elements of creation and took samples of them and put them all in this box. And then, like, the the box was sort of hermetically sealed, and then everything around the box changed. And then when he opened it up again, he was in a new world, uh, but it was like a chaos world. Everything is muddy and and, uh, covered with water. And he had to recreate it out of the the little samples that he had in his box. And and the story Baphomet was kind of telling us about, and Cain also, we talked to him quite a bit. The impression we got from these spirits about what's coming in the apocalypse, which they totally believe in, you know, um, is is like that. That uh, they think there's going to be a new destruction and recreation of the universe that we're in, and that they will somehow be able to become the pilots of that new ark and take over and and redo creation. Wow. So I, yeah. I, I, this is all, you know, I don't know what value this has to you because this well, that's is really actually just, beautiful uh, based on uh, based on channeling. But well, <laughs> that's I mean, what, but that's, that, what I came that's up actually with. beautiful. You know, just dis- destruction and creation. I mean, that's that's it. Yes, yes, and I actually think you know maybe it was because I, I had just had this particular seance when when I saw the movie Noah, but when I saw that movie, I saw the whole thing represented in the movie. It seemed like it was very. Uh, symbolically connected with the story that Baphomet had just told me where um, Tubal Cain, you know, one of the bad guys climbs on board the ark, he sneaks in and, uh, and he's a stowaway and they don't find him until later after everything's been destroyed. So it's like, that's representing the plot that I was just describing someone, you know, from the dark side uh, stowing away on the ark with the the plan of taking over uh, the new creation at the, uh, you know, after, uh, after the destruction. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of explains the rise of masonry against Catholicism as well, like as a great apotheosis. I, I think, uh, gosh, I don't know what's going on with the, with the church and the Masons and, and, uh, yeah, the, the elite behind the scenes. I mean, it seems like you would think the church Ever since ever since the Templars were arrested, the church has been separate from 
them and separate from Freemasonry and really against Freemasonry. So, you know, you wonder what is, what is the big theological difference between these two groups? Well, until, until Vatican II, you know, because Vatican II seems to be Freemasonry taking over the Catholic Church. Well, that's what I wonder. Yeah, have, have these two groups uh, reunited again? Obviously, they were, they were uh, connected in the beginning when the Church chartered the Templars. And so it has Freemasonry... Uh, been a plot really to take over the church again and and remake it in you know the image of something else. Um, I, I I think that's entirely possible. And uh, the the whole thing about the Priory of Zion, uh, which is described as quote a Hermetic Freemasonry in their own documents, and uh, you know a lot of the members. Of course, you can't verify any of the the you know the old members from hundreds of years ago that they have on their lists, but we know that you know this group existed in the fifties onward, and there are you know people involved with it. You can verify who they are. A lot of them are Freemasons, and then some of them are involved in the church, and they at least like to allude in their literature and the interviews that they've given to people that they are heavily infiltrated in the church. So in, in the, I think the Da Vinci Code kind of alluded to this too. Yeah. That basically, it's c- conspiracy within the church to take over the church. Now, they, they say it has something to do with the bloodline, uh, supposedly coming from Jesus. But knowing what I know, I got to wonder if it's really this serpent bloodline that I've been talking about. I mean, it's like Abraxas and, and, and Baphomet are kind of Frankensteins. You know, they, they, I think the Templars created Baphomet in a way that he, he had origins. They contacted real spirits and utilized that those spirits in their creation. But I think they made Baphomet from a bunch of different pieces. And in that way, uh, the the image of a sh- a chimera, uh, you know, something that's a composite of different creatures, is the perfect way of representing that. I think that that's what they did with Baphomet. And when the the Masons are describing their god as being Jabulon, and it's this connection. That's this combination of three different gods from three different traditions. Um, that's kind of describing the same thing. So yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah, it says Jupiter, Baal, and Osiris. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's and, great. you know, uh, um, maybe this is a topic for another time. But uh, I mean, Jupiter, you know, it seems to be connected. Uh, symbolically with the with Jehovah, the God of the Bible, and is you know both are actually referred to by the term Jove. So, uh, and and even the the word Jupiter can be connected to uh, a Sumerian word, uh, Sumerian god Aya Pater, so God the Father. Um, it seems like uh, you know Jupiter is God in a way. And how does that work exactly? You know, and, and yeah. uh, why do the uh, why why do the why did the Freemasons pay homage to him essentially, with all the uh, the Great Seal of the United States and all of these other um, symbols that they created at the birth of the United States? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that is something I would like to explore at some point. Well, that's great. So, um, so can you give the listeners an idea where they can find out more information about you, Tracy? Well, uh, definitely go to tracytwyman.com. Uh, that's my website. It has all my 
articles. It has a link to my old website also with other articles and then, you know, links to all of my books. And uh, I would I would start actually with the current book. Why not? Uh, start with Baphomet, uh, The Temple Mystery Unveiled. That's the new book. And your mind is going to be so blown by that. And then you're going to want to know where it all came from, how it all started. So that, then you can go back and read my other books. Yes, definitely. It's a fantastic book if there ever was one. Uh, so, Thank so thanks very much, Tracy. Thank you for listening to jessiewar.com. We hope that you have enjoyed this program and found it informative. Stay tuned and check back each Friday for a new episode. If you enjoy Jesse War Radio, please consider pledging at patreon.com slash jessiewar. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, all one word. Farewell until next time.